Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast. You are joining us for episode 265, Uterine Health, all about endometriosis, endomyosis, and beyond. And, you know, often I think we really think about the uterus or the womb as the place where a baby grows when a woman is pregnant, but there are various forms of autoimmune, inflammatory, hormone imbalance conditions, and other, even including things such as thyroid problems that can drive issues in this important organ. So in today's episode, we are going to cover all of the elements of endometriosis, adenomyosis, painful sex, fibroids, and more. Yes, with the you know location of the uterus really this can impact both bladder health and colon health and we can have a lot of symptoms in those areas as well that we don't necessarily think of as connected absolutely so anything from ibs Mm -hmm. to inflammatory bowel can have connections to the same mechanisms that we'll be covering today and even looking at things like interstitial cystitis definitely when we're talking microbiome and we're talking inflammation and drivers of inflammation and lifestyle a lot, a lot, a lot of overlap. So I think that this extends even beyond uterine health um, and that there'll be a lot of helpful tips and resources for all of you in today's packed episode. So before we go into new stuff, just to let you know episodes that we've had in the past that would be very relevant to this topic, in 106 and 107, this is talking about birth control and natural birth control or fertility awareness method. We introduced the DAISY monitor in that episode, which is 99.6% accurate as far as family planning. And that gives us an indication of your ovulation and fertility timeline. Uh, Definitely you can check out the link for the DAISY monitor in today's show notes. We won't go deep into that, but we also touched on that in episode 232 more recently on period drama and birth control updates. So check out both of those episodes. And then back in 48 and 49 was a two-part episode on PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome. 145 was endometriosis and infertility. And 121 was keto and women's hormones. All right. Um, So it's been a minute since we've talked endo, at least. Um, For sure. So we'll link all of those in today's show notes. Let's get into just some quick updates um, before we get into today's content. So starting with our Women's Wellness Workshop on December 4th, coming right up around the corner. Yes. So from 3 o'clock until 9 o'clock, we are going to have a fabulous day out in Wimberley, Texas, Hill Country, uh, just west of Austin and uh, northwest of Houston, and even 
Uh, you can, you know, you can get there from anywhere. I was going to say, try to give you directional from Dallas, Southwest <laughs> from Dallas, <laughs> however you slice it from your major cities, um, really a sweet space in the Hill Country. And we will be doing two hours of lecture on, of course, functional medicine. So I'm going to be covering the gut immune connection, adrenal hormone balance, fasting, keto, metabolic flexibility. It is only going to be 40 women in this group. So pretty intimate. Uh, there'll be interactive workshop breaks breakouts where Becky and I will be kind of circling around the room working with balancing flavor profiles. So half of you are going to be doing dips and half of you will be doing salad dressings from scratch. And we're going to talk about that fat, acid, salt, sweet combination of flavors and what happens if you adjust these levers in different ways, how we can really brighten or aliven a dish. We will be doing a wine tasting uh, during a Q&A and charcuterie tasting from our friends at the Salumeria. We will be doing a two-hour cooking class with a four-course dinner that you all will be served at the end. Uh, this is really going to be a fantastic time to gather with like-minded individuals, feel strength of fortitude and also fluidity, understanding how we can pivot during times of roadblocks and to maintain strength and to carry that calm, mellow manner of wellness throughout our entire household and definitely through the holiday season. Um, it's also going to be a really sweet spot to check out the square in downtown Wimberley during holiday shopping time. So I'm suggesting, you know, you guys look at some Airbnbs out here, maybe come for uh, Friday night and then stay through Saturday or stay Saturday night and then spend Sunday shopping a little bit. Uh, we have already sold out the VIP tickets, but we do have a couple tickets left. Go on over to AllieMillerRD.com and um, I don't know the URL off the top of my head, but I think if you just type in the word workshop mm -hmm. on the search bar, uh, that's the only thing that'll come up under the word workshop. Um, again, tickets are uh, 175 early bird, and I'm not exactly sure the date of this airing, but as of November 1st, oh, I think they'll be at 200 now. The early bird tickets have sold, and so um, you can grab a spot for just $200 for that six plus hours of fun, and um, we can't wait to meet y'all and hug and um, do an in-person event. We're excited yeah. that we got to squeeze it in before the end of the year. I know, the first one in so long. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yes, definitely. All right, and then other updates, um, we are are actively taking new clients for our virtual clinic. So we don't really often talk about that here on the podcast. And we realized that our website was like a little bit confusing, maybe um, that we weren't taking clients or that there was a long wait list. And Extrenuous right now, wait list, yeah, yes. Right now is a really good time actually to get in kind of before the like January, February surge. Um, we do both actively have some openings for the November and December timeline. Um, so we've streamlined everything over to Allie Miller RD. We used to have the clinic on our, our other website on naturallynourishedrd.com. Um, and we've moved everything over, made it abundantly clear of the process of how to become a client, what to expect financially, how it works if you're doing labs in conjunction, all of the things tried to hit all of your FAQ. Um, so if that is an area of interest, definitely get in before January surge happens, go on over to Allie Miller RD and click on the R Clinic tab. Awesome. All right. And then today's sponsor is Fond Bone Broth. Y'all know that I am a huge fan of Fond Bone Broth. They are truly wellness, well-made. Oh, we're going to have a bone broth bar also yeah. as like a welcome meet and greet check-in at the event. So that'll be super fun. And of course, we'll be serving Fond and fun toppings and such. Um, so, you know, they are slow simmered and lovingly tendered, tended, excuse me, from simmer to seal. Uh, they cook their broth in exclusively stainless steel. They use artisanal well water that is tested 
tested daily for natural occurring minerals and also excellence ensuring no toxicity. They pair with organic farmers and have sustainably sourced proteins. So they have their new grass-fed beef line, which is phenomenal, as well as their free-range chicken. Um, and what we really love about Fawn Bone Broth is that it's really functional uh, in the sense that the ingredients have synergistic properties. And so the ingredients that are paired with their broth are really set to optimize both taste and absorption of nutrients. So when Stella, just a couple weeks ago, passed on her gunk that Becky has a little bit of, <laughs> she's actually been able to um, now sip broth. She used to only do bone broth popsicles, um, but she was even doing the beet poblano serrano. That's impressive. Um, yeah, yeah, I know. It's not as spicy as the nopalito. No. The nopalito is spicier, but I like to go spicy with my bone broth when any time we need an expectorant. So something to kind of break up that mucus and phlegm. You're already getting the N-acetylcysteine in the bone broth, which helps with white blood cell response and of course works as an expectorant itself and supports respiratory health and so much more but when you add a little bit of kick of spice that takes it really next level to get up into the spaces to um, help to with the capsaicins and the peppers and such help to work further as an expectorant thinning out the mucus and phlegm and, and really breaking up the bad stuff I'm also a huge fan of my favorite flavor in the line I think still to date always is the spring clean which uses the yellow onion and lemon and radish. And then seasonally a big fan of the conductor, which uses bone broth, chipotle, and rosemary. Um, fabulous flavors. They really serve as like your sous chef in a jar. It is the most delightful sippable broth that you can actually use as like a wellness tonic elixir. Go on over to fondbonebroth.com slash AllieMillerRD and you will save on your order. And as Becky has pointed out, you can also double save if you subscribe and then use Allie Miller RD. You can stay on monthly shipments and then also get that additional 15% off. Um, so great value there over at fondbonebroth.com slash Allie Miller RD. Yeah, I've been sipping on the beef ginger cayenne one. I think it's called like the cleanse or something like okay. that. Well, I've got some gunk going on and Good. it's pretty great. Good, good. Pretty great. We should have thought of that before recording and you could have been sipping on it. But it's oh, true. Wow. Do it on your ride <laughs> so, home. Do it on your ride apologies home. for the voice today, guys, but I'm here and, and present and accounted for. And feel good. It's <laughs> yes. the gunk. Yeah. Um, the stress less is also really good. Mm -hmm. That's one that yeah, star yeah, yeah. Uh, fabulous. Yep. Awesome. All right. So on to talk about the uterus. So let's just kind of clarify like anatomy of the uterus. Obviously, we know relative where it is, but is it a muscle? Is it an organ? What are the parts of it? And let's talk about maybe some primary conditions of concern. So yes, it is a muscular organ and it has three parts essentially. So the fundus is going to be the top of the uterus and that is where the uterine tubes at the fundus connect to the fallopian tubes, which then connect to the ovaries and the ovaries are their own organs. So, you know, that is where of course we see production and storage and release of eggs and that's what was released into the fallopian tubes during ovulation. So those uterine tubes kind of make that connection up to the ovaries up at the fundus. And then the body is the main part of the uterus and that includes the uterine cavity. And then the cervix, which is probably the most known part as far as if you've had a pap smear mm -hmm. or whatnot, is the lower or, or tried to thin your cervix when you want that baby to come right, out all the things. Right. Or <laughs> just is, talk about your cervix the whole time you're pregnant. Yes. I was going to say cervix the, the fundus though, you know, if you've had a baby and you get that fundal massage afterward uh -huh. where they're trying to help like that to shrink back down. 
<laughs> yeah. Yep. When you're passing the placenta, you're uh-huh. saying. And even in afterward for like several hours and even the next day, they give you a nice little check to your fundus and Ooh. kind of push on it and palpate. And it's not fun. It does not <laughs> like it sounds. <laughs> uh, and then the cervix. So we, we think yeah. of that as the lower narrow part. And um, that's going to be then from there where then the vaginal canal would connect. Um, so the endometrium, there's, there's tissues that line the uterus. And the myometrium is going to be the middle thickest layer of the uterus wall. Um, and it is made up mostly of smooth muscle. Um, then we see the endometrium as the most internal tissue layer. And this is what sheds with your menstrual cycle. So when we think of, you know, uh, on average, a 28 day cycle, if there is not a fertilized egg that has implanted into the uterus where it would belong, then there are hormonal changes that occur. There's a dynamic drop in progesterone, and that is what's going to create the start of the shedding of the endometrium tissue. Okay. Got it. Makes sense. Yes. So when we're talking about issues here, um, we often think of endometriosis or adenomyosis. And it's interesting because I was talking to Becky before we started recording, I have seen such an influx of adenomyosis and I think that it's just being diagnosed more Mm -hmm. so. Um, It's so common with age and especially common in women, um, both ends of the spectrum that have had many pregnancies or no pregnancies. So it's kind of like depending on the amount of action in that space, we'll tend to see more risk factor associated. But in endometriosis, we see that the endometrial tissue will grow outside of the uterus. Um, so it can actually even grow into the, fallopian, into the fallopian tubes. We can see ovarian cysts and we can also see scar formation. Um, in endometriosis, we can even see growth outside of the uterus beyond that connection to the fallopian tubes and ovaries, even into areas of the legs, mm-hmm. even into areas of lymphatic system and so forth. So it can go into any really kind of smooth muscle area of the body. We can see a lot of back issues with endometriosis as well um, and a big connection with that colon for sure. And then in adenomyosis, we're looking at the endometrial tissue growing um, in the uterus's outside wall. So in that um, myometrium versus the endometrium, we'll get endometrial cells. Got it. So more of like thickening of the actual uterine walls. Is yes. That correct. And in both outside. cases, what's interesting is the endometrial tissue will still shed and bleed following a menstrual cycle. So as I've talked before in endometriosis, and, and I'm someone who um, has endometriosis, like me particularly, I, I have cells like in my legs. And so I get this like barbed wire legs, mm-hmm. like the day before cycle. One of my biggest indicacies is my legs get really heavy. Mm-hmm. And actually, there is internal bleeding in my legs that mimics with my hormone cycle of my menstrual cycle. So that blood obviously doesn't leave my body through my vaginal canal. Right, right. Um, but there is still a lot of that prostaglandin inflammatory activity outside of the uterus that still follows that same hormonal cycle. And then, yes, in adenomyosis, um, often that is going to be passing, passing as vaginal bleed or create quite dynamic cramping, thickening, and mm-hmm. clots. Um, and with both conditions, we can see um, severe cramping, menstrual drama, um, and we can also see painful intercourse, mm-hmm. which is um, an area of concern as well. Yes. And then, um, you know, 
both areas too, affecting fertility for sure. Right. And and the thing is, is that we can see propendency towards fibroids mm-hmm. in both conditions because we can just see tissue buildup. Um, and we can also see uh, formed um, malformed tissue, so dysplasia or cellular dysfunction. And so this will impact the ability of that uterus to be supple or hospitable to mm-hmm. a fertilized egg, if you will. And so if there is more inflammation, there's more scarring, there's more thickening, it's going to be more difficult for a fertilized egg to implant successfully. Sure. Um, and, and, you know, talking about this kind of hormonally responsive tissue, right, it's to shed monthly. It's located in these areas where it's not necessarily supposed to be outside the endometrium, which will cause more pain, inflammation, as you mentioned, scarring, adhesions, fibroids, all of the things. Um, let's get into maybe breaking down more of the symptoms and, and anything that's distinct of these two conditions. Yeah. So endometriosis, again, much more common, but adenomyosis is so like the stats on it. We think one in 10 women have endometriosis. So, you know, 10% of women of childbearing age are dealing with this condition. And adenomyosis, I've seen anywhere between 20 to 70%. Um, mm-hmm. I've also seen 5%. And okay. so it seems to be kind of very vague and, and newer in the world. We'll talk in a moment about diagnostics of um, really getting that that confirmed diagnosis of such. But with both endometriosis and adenomyosis, you can see dysmenorrhea or painful periods. You can also see painful intercourse. We can see chronic pelvic pain more in the adenomyosis. Uh, we can see abnormal bleeding and prolonged period. And then we can see more prone towards an enlarged uterus with the adenomyosis. Because again, you're getting that dynamic thickening, mm-hmm. right? And then with um, endometriosis, we can see the painful periods, painful intercourse. But this is where we'll start to see maybe more bowel movement activity, painful bowels and, and bowel uterine connection. Um, we can even see dysuria or painful urination pelvic pain in general, and then there can be uh, dynamics beyond just the bowels of either loose stools or constipation during cycles, um, more systemic impact on digestion, like like nausea and pretty dynamic fatigue and just that systemic ache, like I mentioned, the heavy legs and mm-hmm. such. Um, and what about the risk factors for one versus the other? Are there any things that kind of distinguish that or put you more at risk? Well, it's interesting because adenomyosis actually has a connection with use of antidepressants, which is interesting. And I also am curious on like, well, is that why that's on the rise in my clinic world? Mm -hmm. Because more people want an antidepressants in this last, you know, with everything with the pandemic, that that's impacted individuals and they've gone on higher amounts of SSRIs. Um, We do know that adenomyosis, again, has that connection for childbearing, having had more multiple children or no children. Um, often can be resolved once we go through menopause. So there's that, of course, time stamp, if you will, of, of the fertility cycle that this would be impacted. And we have seen also in endomyosis individuals that were treated with tamoxifen for breast cancer, that that's another kind of medical-induced risk factor. In endometriosis, we tend to think of individuals that started their cycle earlier, um, have a shorter menstrual cycle, so often less than that 28 days, um, often going to see heavier menstrual bleeding with both cases. And what we do see with endo that we talked about, I think, in our period update episode, which was almost a year ago now, um, was when we obstruct the menstrual flow, endometriosis can be exacerbated. Mm-hmm. And so what we we were talking about how I'm not a fan of the Diva Cup okay. yeah, for that yeah. reason, um, because it's putting pressure on your uterine wall, you know, like so 
you're, you're getting, um, too much pressure that your body's basically trying to, is it, it's confused about like, am I shedding this cup? And, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's inserted vaginally more than up in the uterus mm-hmm. for, per se, but it does create stress in that area of that junction. Um, and so there can be a lot more cramping, a lot more drama when we wear things like that. And the same with even a tampon. This is where, you know, beyond the organic non-bleached tampons, you'd want to allow a menstrual pad in those first couple of days to, or the, the underwear or whatever mm-hmm. types of things you're doing, but to let things flow out versus create that tissue confusion for your body and that inflammatory process. And then we do know with endometriosis, um, higher alcohol and caffeine consumption can be a risk factor. And then there's a strong, like seven-fold risk factor of family members with endometriosis. Mm-hmm. And there's also correlation with autoimmune conditions. So often we'll see individuals that have like rheumatoid arthritis mm-hmm. um, to also have endometriosis and such. Got it. Um, and how are these conditions actually diagnosed? Is it like a pelvic exam or are we talking imaging or, or what's typically done there? Yeah. So right now for both conditions, there are no blood tests, um, which that would be the easiest option, wouldn't it? That'd be mm-hmm. the, the most non-invasive way. Um, but there are no accurate biomarkers. I mean, we can of course see inflammatory markers and we can of course, we'll talk later in today's episode about salivary hormones and why that would be important to assess because there is definitely in both conditions an, an estrogen dominant mm-hmm. element to them. Um, but again, the idea is, are we, um, keeping remission of the condition or actually, you know, reversing the condition. And, um, a lot of times if there is that familial genetic impact, you may not be able to prevent having it, but you can prevent the severity of it. Right. So maybe not even knowing you have these endometrial cells outside of that, that lining itself, because you're in such an anti-inflammatory state and everything else is optimal. But generally speaking, um, this is going to be diagnosed in individuals that have painful intercourse or painful periods, um, really severe cramping in periods. And when we're looking at actual diagnosis, the adenomyosis used to only be diagnosed following surgical intervention. And so this is why I think there wasn't so much of a diagnosis Mm -hmm. early on. Um, it was only examining the tissue samples after a uterine surgery. And then they'd be like, yep, that's going on. Um, but now actually they're looking at just a physician running a physical exam and feeling where the uterus is feeling swelling and tenderness. Um, and in many cases they will just do a imaging so they can do a, um, sonohistography and, um, they could do an injection of saline solution into the uterine's cavity before a sonogram to really see specifically where the, the, the particular cells are aligned. And then in endometriosis, that can be diagnosed actually just with an intervaginal ultrasound, um, could be a sonogram or an MRI, um, but often just doing a sonogram on the abdomen or as an intravaginal is going to be enough to get that positive diagnosis. Again, laparoscopic surgery and actually looking at endometrial tissue outside of the cells as a, as a tissue assessment under microscopic examination would be the true known mm-hmm. diagnosis. Okay. Otherwise, we're just saying that there's thickening, there's, um, you know, you could definitely see fibroids and issues though through an intervaginal ultrasound. Sure. Okay. Um, and then once diagnosed, what is the course of, of treatment typically? Yeah. So generally speaking, it's just going to be over the counter or prescription, depending on the level of pain, anti-inflammatories, and that's typically going to be NSAIDs, right? Um, honestly, it's so interesting when I was dealing with pretty severe endometriosis, I was on Celebrex, which is an NSAID that is generally prescribed for joint inflammation. Mm -hmm. 
but higher dose than you can get with like safely consuming Aleves or, or, you know, naproxen sodium or ibuprofen. Um, so I was on Celebrex, which is pretty intense. And then also I had a Tylenol with codeine, Mm -hmm. um, formula for like that level of severity of pain, which thank God I haven't crossed back to that bridge. Um, and, and that was before I employed a lot of the functional medicine elements that we'll be talking about today. So pain management is kind of the number one. And then the secondary is hormone regulation and often as we've talked about in episodes 106 and 107 and you know natural birth natural ways of family planning versus oral contraceptives um, what we're doing with oral contraceptives in this case is just suppressing the hormone dysregulation so rather than kind of fixing or putting the band-aid on the volcano and we're suppressing the body from making its own endogenous hormones by giving it that exogenous or outside of the body synthetic form which is going to be very predictable um, very dose dependent and often the type of birth control that will be provided will have high dose progestins um, and then you know beyond birth control there's, there's actually even some inter um uterine devices that can be used um and this is where some would actually even look at like the marina with the progestin version Mm -hmm. versus just the copper for these types of cases because it's going to actually kind of have that hormonal internal activity um and then when things would get quite severe this is when we would look at endometrial ablation um an outpatient procedure where a a laser or other ablation technique is going to basically just kill off or destroy or or cut out that lining of the uterus that was very inflamed. Um, But that can be a risk factor for fertility if if fertility is a goal. And then there are various forms of surgery. The most dynamic would be a hysterectomy, of course. Um, But then there's kind of, again, just like ablation, there's there's various levels in between. Um, I have seen in in adenomyosis um, a uterine artery embolism, uh, which is pretty minimally invasive and um, that does have quite successful outcomes. Um, so that's where they're working with that primary blood flow, that that artery um, that feeds to the uterus to try to kind of reduce that amount of surge that's going on in that area. Okay. Um, so a lot of different <laughs> treatments here ranging from, you know, oral contraceptives to sounds like pretty intensive surgical procedures. What about in endo, anything that's distinct or it's kind of this horse at piece, same thing? It's pretty overlap. Um, the one thing that I don't think they're doing with adenomyosis is working with um, androgens as much. So danazole um, is going to be focusing, that's a, that's a medication that's going to be working um, in the androgen space. And then um, gonadotropin releasing hormone medications as well are some that again, beyond, it would be a next level second tier after a hormone contraceptive that would be layered on based on that individual's expressed hormone imbalance per se. Got it. Um, so, you know, sounds like a lot of the conventional stuff, not getting to that root cause of, of what's causing this in the first place, which the estrogen dominance, we're just kind of band-aiding with the, the birth control or, or, you know, trying to reduce pain. Um, but beyond these conditions, when, you know, extending to uterine fibroids and inflammation in the uterus and infertility, we see so much overlap in this driving cause or, or you know, in the solutions ultimately yes. too. Um, let's talk just impact of, of lifestyle factors and diet that can drive, you know, a risk for these uterine issues and, and looking at drivers of hormonal imbalance. Yes. So we kind of think first line of defense, hormone imbalance and inflammation, 
And then like the second tier level would be microbiome and toxicity. So all four elements, and again, it's kind of one of those things when we're looking at a functional medicine approach, that's why I love the type of work we do. And that's why that kind of one-on-one individualized care matters because someone's kryptonite is going to be someone else's, you know, I can't say superfood in this case, but someone's Achilles heel will be different than how someone else presents, right? So for someone that is in a cosmetic industry um, or works in an industrialized chemical plant um, or is a um, you know worker at BP or Shell or you name it mm-hmm. they're exposed to um, volatile chemicals well then we might want to really go deep down what I would otherwise say is the third or fourth priority of toxicity for that individual whereas you know again generally speaking we're going to start with anti-inflammatory support um, and we're going to start with the hormone balancers and most definitely with any form of uterine inflammatory condition, you're going to need anti-inflammatory support during menstrual cycle. Sure. But, you know, that might not be your first intervention as far as like diet regulation. But in the world of risk factors, we definitely still know point blank that trans fats are quite severe drivers. And be mindful again, even though trans fats are banned on label um, and we're not going to see those partially hydrogenated oils, we're still privy to say avoid industrialized oils in general general and watch out for fried foods and any food that would be considered like a processed or a fast food, which is going to be really making with the preservatives combined with taking a liquid fat and trying to solidify it or shelf stabilize it. We're going to see some trans fat like impact on the body. Um, So focusing on clean whole food fats would be one big thing that you can do and really cleaning out your pantry there. And Um, If you're sending this on to a family member or someone that's new to these concepts, this makes me think immediately about our program, Naturally Nourished Food is Medicine for the Whole Family, where we have an entire 30-minute almost, I think, video on fats, and we really geek out about specific selection based on smoke point we talk about you know so what would you use for a salad dressing versus what would you use for a light heat saute or stir fry and what would you use for roasting and it really does matter because remember you can even take a whole food fat into a trans fat if it is polyunsaturated it has all of those multiple susceptibilities to oxidative damage and this is when we're going to start to see that inflammatory process okay Got it. Um, and then gluten is another big one here. Let's talk yeah. about that. Gluten's remarkable in the world of endometriosis. And I think that, you know, there's also, again, part of that overlap of individuals that have thyroid issues mm-hmm. and endometriosis as a connection. And I'm one of those too. So I'm Hashimoto's thyroiditis and I'm endometriosis. Um, and so we have seen a study that I'll link in the show notes that looked at uh, 207 women and 75% of them had a dynamic decrease in pain after eliminating gluten from their diet, also saw a reduction in inflammatory biomarkers. Um, so, you know, I think that that's one of those that's pretty no brainer. And um, we talked, I think it was in our Q&A episode last week, just about the impact of like, you know, so is it worth doing like a Dave's killer bread or like Costco has this like, you know, organic sprouted gluten bread. I still think, yes, you want to avoid the most processed, which is that vital wheat gluten added to many, you know, multi-grain or whole grain or whole wheat breads. Um, But, you know, I really think it is specific to gluten itself structurally and that gliadin protein, Mm -hmm. which would even be in spelt and rye and such. And so I think it would be an important call to action to say for at least 90 day trial or three months, three cycles, allowing yourself tight gluten free and gluten avoidance. And then I mentioned as risk factors, alcohol and caffeine. So this would be another one that we'd want to watch 
in the diet. Um, and then there is a lot of studies, I will say, on red meat. And you guys know I love red meat, so I like hate to poo-poo red meat. I want to say that I think it's more of an omega-6 concern because we know the benefits of zinc with endometriosis and uterine health. We know the benefits of B vitamins that we'll get into in a moment. Um, we know that iron-rich foods are very positive. And so I really want to say conventional processed red meat. And um, I have not seen any research that shows quality grass-fed meat to be a concern. It's really looking at more of the omega-6 drive and that inflammatory response there. Yep. Um, and that's unfortunately just never studied the difference between conventional right. and, and grass-fed. I mean, there's feedlot studies. Right, right, but, right. right. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this case, not so much. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. And beyond just limiting or avoiding these foods, what else um, would be kind of our, our go-tos for uterine health? So... I think fiber is super important in this world. Um, You know, really thinking of that idea that we want fiber to be like a broom and especially assessing where your bowel motility is at, your bowel formation and bowel mass. Because if we know that the colon is that final detox phase of estrogen and we know that the tissue of the colon and intestines are so close neighboring to the uterus, If we're dealing with excessive estrogen or recirculating of estrogen in the colon, we're definitely going to be prone towards more exacerbated or more severity of outcomes with these uterine conditions. So fiber, it would be really important because it's going to bind excess estrogen and also help with that fecal bowel mass. Um, So looking at, of course, you know, getting in those two to three cups of leafy greens daily, getting your cruciferous vegetables in, especially those with the Eindol 3 carbonyls, which would help with that estrogen detoxification further. So that's going to be, of course, broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, um, any in that cruciferous family. Um, Going for legumes might be very appropriate. So like chickpeas, um, navy beans, I'm thinking of kind of chili during this time of the year, which would be a great thing to do. And then um, looking at fruits for fiber as well would be great. So like the insoluble fiber from your berries and the seeds in there, and then um, getting some of the soluble fiber in like your stone fruits and your melons um, all would work very appropriate as long as keeping glycemic index in check. Um, because there is a lot of indication of insulin growth factor or um, the impact that that can have on this inflammatory process. And we do know that a very low carbohydrate diet can optimize fertility, but it can also um, optimize endometriosis specifically. Got it. And then what about like chia, flax, that kind of thing for fiber too yeah. in that world? Yeah. And then remember flax, you know, we've talked mm-hmm. about on past episodes how that can actually support the estriol and the metabolic impact of flaxseed. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that that's worth bringing in for sure. We, we kind of have talked in past episodes about seed cycling timelines that you might consider flax, like from maybe days six to 12 of your cycle as the most kind of potent times to use the flax seed. Um, so that could be something incorporated in the form of like those flackers. Um, yes, adding, you know, chia, walnuts, almonds, you name it. Essential fatty acids from whole food forms are going to be really important. Um, and then that opens the world when we're talking essential fatty acids to omega-3 sure, fatty acids. Yeah, yeah. And wild-caught fish is a fabulous selection. So really getting research supports two grams of EPA per day is key. 
And if we're looking at, I'm going to start with supplements a little bit in here, but our omega-3 supplement, the EPA DHA Extra, that would be three capsules because each capsule has 710 milligrams of EPA. And when we reformulated it, we went down on our, we maintained, excuse me, the same amount of DHA per capsule, but we went up on the EPA. So I was going to say we went down in the ratio essentially because that EPA went up. Um, and that's because again, that EPA is the more dominant anti-inflammatory supporter. We really think of DHA as more of the cognitive brain health. So when we're thinking of like, yes, fetal brain development or, um, anti-aging for dementia or cognitive decline, we want to look at getting that DHA up, but for most standard anti-inflammatory day-to-day function, our EPA DHA extra balance is really appropriate there. Um, Again, and you're going to be getting that two grams of EPA in three capsules. Most fish oils that you see are going to require about eight to 10 capsules to meet close to that amount of 2000 milligrams or two grams of that EPA. And nobody wants to take Eight to ten capsules of no <laughs> of fish oil, not at all, not okay. at all. Um, and then antioxidant-rich foods, I totally. also see high on the list here. So you know, going for your color spe- spectrum in your fruits and vegetables, getting in you know those dark leafy greens as you mentioned, your berries, your you know citrus fruits. I think would be fabulous here too. Yeah, I mean vitamin C in itself. We'll mm-hmm. talk about in a moment. A lot of positive studies there. And so again, repeating with the berries, citrus would be great. So beyond oranges lemons, limes, grapefruit, dark chocolate. Always love recommending that because you're getting that magnesium and um, also going to be getting that mood boost effect from the theobromine and then um, the antioxidants that we see in the cacao. Um, and just colors in general, which also takes me back to the Naturally Nourished program, the, the food is medicine for the whole family. We have that really fun rainbow handout that we have set up for the taste adventure module for children, but it's also just great for like us when we're mm-hmm. grocery shopping. I like to kind of like run down that list when I'm grabbing. I always start with produce when I'm filling up my grocery cart and I always like to think like, okay, I have two different types of leafy greens. So I'll get maybe like rainbow chard and curly kale. Um, and I might even get another thing of greens like an organic tub mix or um, I'll do the lacinato kale and then I'll always get my berries and then I always have some form of citrus and then it's like okay now I'm going to choose three to four different colors so I might go butternut squash because of the season time or acorn squash I might go for um, something fun like a like a black radish or watermelon radish as something that I want to do raw as a dipper like a crudite or maybe to roast in the oven um, with truffle salt or something fun like that and then I'm looking for maybe lycopene in my tomatoes and, um, you know, trying to get another uh, third or fourth color in there so that I'm getting that diversity of antioxidants, which I think is really key. Awesome. Um, and then focusing on quality fats, you mentioned. So a high fat diet we've seen to help to reduce um, sever- severity of symptoms as well as dairy consumption actually which that feels counterintuitive with the yeah. whole estrogen element tell me about yeah. that so there was a study that there's actually two studies that have highlighted the benefits of dairy with endometriosis and then there's also some studies the ones that associate with the gluten and are looking at like the A1 casein um, for dairy to not be your friend and okay. to dairy to impact I think it was again 75% of individuals had improvement with removal of gluten 
gluten. Dairy has like a 35% of improvement, but that was that study there. And the idea is, well, but the A2 dairy, which has a different form of that casein and is less pro-inflammatory, actually likely has some beneficial properties. Um, so it could be the CLAs, the conjugated linoleic acids that we would see in more of a quality like um, you know, Jersey cows make the A2. And so mm-hmm. we're thinking of like a local dairy, low heat processed or raw milk would be great. Um, we're actually getting some of those beneficial forms of fats. And then that also has, again, the insulin sensitivity element of it there versus the pro-inflammatory response that you get from your conventional dairy. So I think the nuance, just like with the red meat world, is going to come from the quality of sourcing. Got it. Okay. Um, and then vitamin E here would be also another um, antioxidant uh, that we talked about a little bit with anti-inflammatory effects, especially on production of prostaglandin. Yeah. So, you know, you're going to get the vitamin E in those nuts and seeds that we were talking about. So like doing like quarter cup of roasted almonds um, daily or walnuts and sprouted walnuts and almonds as a snack with your berries would be great. Um, Vitamin E also seeing that in our leafy green vegetables. But that's the big mechanism there is that of the antioxidants, it is a fat-soluble antioxidant and um, it's going to impact directly prostaglandin production, which is the driver of those pro-inflammatory compounds. So you may think outside of the world of quote-unquote seed cycling, which we've kind of foo-fooed somewhat as far as the actual impact of those nutrients Mm -hmm. on the body, I do think it would behoove us to think about doing more nuts and seeds as we get into that end of that luteal phase um, to support and and prevent an excess buildup of those inflammatory mediating Mm -hmm. effects and get that tonifying hormonal impact of the vitamin E. Okay. Um, And then vitamin C, um, another antioxidant um, that plays a a big role. Tell me about that one. So we're looking at the vitamin C and E are going to work, of course, both being antioxidants synergistically. Um, vitamin C is going to be found in all produce. So just by getting that rainbow of color, you're rock and roll there. Um, but vitamin C has a lot of benefits specific to progesterone as well. Um, so we do see both the antioxidant effects of, of course, if we're thinking about also in the world of fertility, higher antioxidants are going to ensure that egg health is optimized. So less oxidative stress. Um, that means that there's more viability in egg health, um, less oxidative stress means less prone towards fibroid or tissue malformation so these antioxidants that scavenge free radicals are going to mechanistically be reducing both the inflammatory effect as well as the damaging to the tissues effect if that makes sense and vitamin c also has been shown at 750 milligrams daily um, as supplemental support to increase progesterone levels upwards of 77%. So that's a pretty big power player as both a double dip of an antioxidant and progesterone connection. So I think that the BioC Plus, in addition to that EPA DHA extra that I mentioned, would be a really important player here to help to get that balance of progesterone as well as that antioxidant boost. And so you're looking at two capsules of that a day to hit the 750 because one is 600 so you're like almost there yeah yeah so two capsules daily would be appropriate and especially again the cool thing being in kind of cold and flu season you're getting a a double dip there with the vitamin c uh we'll link the whole episode we did on vitamin c if y'all haven't heard it it was kind of one of my favorites of this year i think actually um where we nerded out on its antiviral effects and how it can impact 
um, white blood cell response and both the innate and adaptive immune system. Yes. Uh, super cool. So, you know, thinking about these antioxidants um, with, you know, higher levels of oxidative stress in endometriosis, right, that we see this, you know, in blood samples and in fluid samples of, of women who have this condition. Um, so let's cover a little bit more on how to apply antioxidants um, in that sense. Yeah, so there have been a lot of studies that show that the um, peritoneal fluid and peripheral blood of women with endometriosis have higher oxidative stress. So we're looking at eating higher antioxidant diet, which we just went through the whole color thing, um, adding in potentially the um, BioC plus would be another way to do that. Um, we've seen in studies both ends of the spectrum that women with endometriosis tend to have lower vitamin A, lower vitamin C, lower vitamin E, and zinc intake in their diet as well as cellular levels and that also when supplementing with these compounds have had reduced pain and also have had um, reduced concentration of the oxidative stress or inflammatory mediating compounds. So I think that that's pretty powerful. We There was a diet study that was a high antioxidant diet and um, women with endometriosis increased their peripheral enzymatic superoxide dismutase and glutathione peroxidase activity for three months of intervention compared to a controlled standard diet. So we're actually seeing mechanistically these um, pathways, these enzymatic pathways that regulate inflammation and toxins um, and having favorable outcomes when we make the change in diet and supplement strategy, which I think again is great because there's multiple factors that we'll get when we apply the supplement and diet strategy. You know, sure. so we're also seeing the connection of again immune health with these compounds. We're also seeing the connection of metabolic health with these compounds. We're seeing um, reduced uh, risk for cancer. I mean, it, it just kind of goes on. And so, shielding yourself with antioxidants, I think, is a fabulous strategy. Yeah, and and taking you know a quality multivitamin right is going to cover all of those bases and beyond. Um, so doing like our multi defense or multi avail mama, especially if you are of a you know cycling age or, or desire for you know having another babe, um, I think the the multi avail mama would be great. Yeah, and you could do a combo, which um, we've kind of talked about a little bit, mm -hmm. and I think we both do. Um, so I generally take the multi avail mama um, at for a day and which is the dosage to get you know your rda of everything you need to be in optimal prenatal health um, but occasionally what i'll do is i'll take three multivale mamas and one multi-defense uh, just to get that antioxidant blend and to just get a little bit mm -hmm. of a heavier hit um, the multi-defense with iron um, and i'll also do that you know when i'm closer to my menstrual cycle to get a little boost of iron i might sure. just add that yeah, on yeah. top of the four even because um, that's going to give it 18 milligrams of iron in that uh, two tablet dosage. And so adding another nine milligrams can be really helpful getting into that kind of menstrual time and also getting bathed with a little bit of additional antioxidant boost. Sure. And then another thing that I think about in the world of minerals, especially if you're an individual with um, something going on in your uterine tissue and you've also seen weight gain, um, bringing in the thyroid optimizer would be a strong consideration because there is going to be that vitamin A connection there. And again, the study on the feeding and supplements used vitamin A, C, and E. Um, and zinc. And so you are going to get in the thyroid optimizer another boost of zinc, which we said kind of seasonally is very appropriate. You're getting 25 milligrams of zinc per two capsules there. 
Um, we're getting selenium in here, which is another potent antioxidant, the vitamin A. Now in a form, the thyroid optimizer um, is keeping at 2000 IUs of vitamin A. So we're not worried about that being toxic per se, if to get pregnant and whatnot, we always say um, under 10,000 IUs, we usually do a blend of a uh, mixed carotenoid and then 5,000 IUs from the retinol, um, which is more of that animal derived vitamin A. Um, but getting that boost could also help for sure with the inflammatory process. And um, then you're also getting the adaptogens in this formula. So the ginseng and um, getting uh, mineral support for metabolism like chromium. Okay. Um, and then combining kind of this antioxidant and also anti-inflammatory support, let's talk about turmeric because I know there's some solid research there and that's always my go-to for like any form of period pain is the super turmeric. Yeah. And I made a really interesting faux pas because I had been working with a lot more of the inflammasome, which has turmeric in it. It has, you know, boswellia, it has proteolytic enzymes and other anti-inflammatory compounds. There's some resveratrol in there and such. And, um, I always use super turmeric as well. And I was like, oh, well I had upped my inflammasome cause I'm kind of working on my uterus myself. I wanted to break down adhesions or any potential tissue buildup. Um, and so I was like, oh, I'm taking like six to eight inflammasome. I don't probably need my super turmeric, but curcumin specifically, the active compound in turmeric, it inhibits the endometriosis um, with the endometrial cells by reducing the estradiol production. And so um, we can actually see that the estradiol plays a role with ectopic endometrium and epithelial cells. And so when curcumin is utilized in a higher dose, like in the super turmeric, it can actually suppress the proliferation or basically the growth of the endometrial cells and also reduce that estrogen dominance. So there is a tool for super turmeric to regulate estrogen dominance that we really have never talked about on the podcast. Um, and that's important to consider because remember estrogen revs as progesterone dips towards the end of your cycle. Um, and, uh, also with the super turmeric now having Delta tocotrienols, you're getting that double dip for that complex for the vitamin E support that we talked about as an antioxidant. Um, but I think it's worth noting that again, specifically curcumin in high dose. Um, and so the super turmeric taking about three to four of those as you're getting like two days prior to your cycle. And then throughout the first two days of your cycle until you're really in a full menstrual flow, um, would play a really big key because it actually, again, inhibits the endometrial cells, um, from proliferating or increasing growth. So you want less endometrial cells if you're dealing with endometriosis or adenomyosis, because those excessive cells are where they don't belong. Right. right so by right. suppressing the cell production, you're going to over time, reduce the pain, reduce the, um, you know, infertility elements, the fibroids and all that jazz. That makes sense. And, and thinking about curcumin, you know, applied to like cancer, it's suppressing aberrant cell growth. So kind of a similar mechanism there. Yeah. So, um, you know, and then of course it's anti-inflammatory, uh -huh. it's very potent antioxidant and, um, it can actually, right. Prevent lesions from growing new blood vessels, which is huge there. Super. Cool. Yeah. So super turmeric now has become kind of more of a, a leading player, I would say, with the world of anyone in uterine health space, I would say one twice daily as mm -hmm. a base. And then again, you'd go up to that four or, you know, upwards of six if you need to, but probably four, like two to three days prior to cycle and then into your first two days of cycle. Okay. Got it. Um, and then in that antioxidant world as well, we've seen some promising research about NAC or N-acetylcysteine. Yes. Um, 
seeing that 600 milligrams three times daily Three, which is like not the much. magic of three for three consecutive days for three months can <laughs> reduce um ovarian inter- endometriosis cyst size so that's yeah. pretty promising yeah absolutely and so um you know when we're looking at our cellular antiox each capsule is going to be providing 500 milligrams you get one gram per two capsules um so that would be like four capsules would more than fulfill that amount of 1800 milligrams. You'd be getting 2,000 milligrams or two grams of the um, NAC in our cellular antioxidant at four daily. Um, and again, reduction of ovarian endometriosis cysts, which is pretty significant. Um, also, there was another study that looked at 600 milligrams twice daily. So that's closer to two capsules daily, or maybe three if you're rounding up. Um, and that has shown to reduce endometriosis related pain, as well as reducing the need for pain relief medication. So both on like the, the what was needed to offset. And then a final study with NAC, because I just was nerding out on NAC with our recent uh, supplement release. And again, I think NAC is such a big player right now with pandemic. Um, this was a study looking at a treatment group of women using NAC. And um, they only had 47 women in the treatment group. And of them, 24 of them canceled their laparoscopy due to the disappearance of endometriomas, um, reduction of pain, and or successfully getting pregnant. So I thought that that was quite remarkable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Almost 50% Uh of the test population, or yeah, you know, it is 50%, yeah, of them actually canceled the procedure. And if you were to the level of a procedure, that means you were quite symptomatic right right you know so the researchers of of that study concluded that NAC offers better results than hormonal treatments and without the side effects which is pretty awesome super super cool and what a great tool for us so many other reasons as well yes um and then vitamin d speaking of kind of multifactorial and immune yeah we got the immune stuff happening today um and and you know thinking about endo as as an autoimmune um, condition certainly makes sense um but one particular clinical trial um was done on 69 women with fibroids um and vitamin d deficiency and found that fibroid sizes significantly decreased in the group that received vitamin D supplementation. So the conclusion was that vitamin D administration is an effective way to treat fibroids. Yes. So we often think of the vitamin D as an intervention with PCOS mm-hmm. because we tend to think of like insulin resistance with that population. And again, this is that dual anchor of carb control with all of this because of course if carbs are up insulin is up and we know insulin resistance is the pre-diabetes type of manifestation of dysregulated blood sugar so vitamin d itself of course can aid with insulin sensitivity um, and we also know that it can play a dynamic role specifically now with fibroid size um, also with uterine inflammation and so we think of this as a really important intervention in the world of infertility always checking in on vitamin D levels and status. And so another, I still make my call to action that you guys can do the vitamin D blood spot test. I think it's, what is it on the website? Like 80 bucks or something like that? 70 to 80, 75 maybe. Yep. And so you can just finger stick at your kitchen table, mail it in and make sure that your vitamin D level is optimized, which, you know, we we say the broad range would be 50 to 100 as we go into cold flu season, we really want to be more like in the 60 plus world. 
Um, and that's where you can then adjust the vitamin D balance blend accordingly. Um, again, we call it balanced blend because it has the MK7 in there and the K2 and that vitamin K also independently has been shown in research to be supportive for insulin receptor function and overall insulin hormonal signaling and balance. And so you're getting that, but we don't layer it in for that. We actually have it in there so that it can better deliver calcium in the body. So we don't see calcification of soft tissues, which could be a risk factor of just exclusive or isolated vitamin D supplements in high dose. So getting that balanced blend with that vitamin K is key in preventing calcification of soft tissues. And also it specifically enhances dynamically the absorption of D itself. Mm-hmm. So um, big important element to call out on the vitamin D balance blend and take maybe just one capsule daily could do the trick, but you should test. Um, so if you have a wellness physical coming up, always ask your doctor to draw your vitamin D. Um, and then we've seen that stress can actually, um, exacerbate, surprise, <laughs> exacerbate Always endometriosis manifestation and, um, some of the inflammatory parameters as well. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Sure can. Um, you know, so we think also this is kind of an overlap in the world of PCOS and endometriosis and just uterine health and adenomyosis. Um, we often will see DHEA levels, which are more androgenic driving in the individuals that have PCOS. Um, and we'll often see DHEA as its own driving factor for endometrial hyperplasia, which endometrial hyperplasia is just a condition of the female reproductive system where the lining of the uterus or endometrium becomes unusually thick. So hyperplasia, meaning it had too many cells formed and, and that thickening of the uterus often tied to elevated DHEA. And Mm -hmm. DHEA gets elevated in individuals with, yes, insulin resistance and blood sugar dysregulation. That's why keto is a really powerful anchor to pull DHEA levels down. But DHEA more so is respondent because it is androgenic, meaning made by the adrenal glands. And so DHEA, um, we also know, has high risk association for cancer because it can metabolize into estrogen. And so it can drive estrogen dominance. And this is how it's all kind of woven and connected. So managing stress is extremely important. Um, So we're looking at, of course, all the lifestyle factors of mindfulness, gratitude practice, release, four, seven, eight breath, um, considering the stress uh, bundle, stress support bundle, which has the GABA calm in there and the calm and clear and the adaptogen boost um, would be a beautiful consideration because we know that the compounds in adaptogen boost, namely rhodiola, has fabulous research on supporting healthy ovulation and fertility. And so again, in these populations, we want to really regulate the cycle and the hormone balance. Um, And that's where that rhodiola could be a big singing hero in the world of our adaptogen boost. And then um, specific to our calm and clear, actually, valerian and chamomile, which are present in there as nerving herbs, um, have been shown to be very um, successful tools at alleviating pain. So there was a study that looked at 255 milligrams of valerian um, three times a day for three days at the start of a period, um, actually having a dynamic reduction in pain. And then chamomile was shown in a large review of therapies for menstrual pain, menstrual pain, excuse me. And a study identified that the chamomile is actually more effective than the NSAID drugs. So when you're doing the calm and clear, not only are you mellowing out your mood, but you can also be mellowing out that inflammatory cascade that's occurring as you're getting to the end of your cycle, 
Also, we know that that's a time when if we're dealing with like PMDD mm-hmm. or, you know, any form of mood disorder towards that time of that end of that luteal phase, premenopausal, excuse me, pre-menstrual um, PMS kind of world, right? That that'd be another time that that calm and clear can help to kind of blanket or mellow out the irritability or cheerfulness sure. or all of the things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would think of it for that reason, but I was not aware of, pain of this other pain management. Um, mm-hmm. So good one to pulse up for sure, like going into your cycle three days prior or so. Yeah, and could do it in the form of teas as mm-hmm. well. So like a valerian chamomile tea mm-hmm. could be a really wonderful thing to do a couple of those evenings. Probably not in the morning. It's not going to get you going. It's going to nope. definitely be somewhat sedative, uh, but could be a really great way to mellow out in the evening and uh, maybe even adding in like some raspberry leaf tea into that so you're getting that uterine tone sure. we'll, t- we'll nerd out on that a little bit in a moment okay um i know all about that from drinking it preparing for noah so can't yes. wait to hear <laughs> um and then relax and regulate i think is a, a big one um that I, that for sure i do pulse up with my clients who have painful periods um and and we're getting that magnesium bisglycinate for that neuromuscular relaxation we're getting that myo-inositol for improved insulin signaling, but also hormone balance. Um, so right. that would be a biggie here too. Yeah. I mean, the myo-inositol, so well-researched to support healthy ovulation function and also to help with progesterone level regulation, just ovarian health in general. And so if you're keeping the ovaries healthy, you're keeping the hormone factories healthy, which means that you're helping with hormone regulation in the body. Again, instead of relying on that birth control to suppress and give synthetic, you're giving love to the glands that produce so that they do a better job kind of thing. And that would be one, like one scoop kind of as your baseline and then pulsing up maybe two scoops like three days prior to cycle or something yep. like that or at the onset of cramps you can use it like right then and there yeah i think I, I always am a big lead of the idea of being proactive is better than reactive and so when we're talking about again being someone who's been like debilitated with the level of pain that i've experienced in the past um, you always want to kind of start to lower the dam, not let it build up and uh-huh. then and then let it spill over and try to help stop that. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, it's so much easier if you start to actually work with the COX-2 inhibitors and the prostaglandin inhibitors and these anti-inflammatory tools so that you aren't dealing with that dynamic rev. And um, I have had people ask, so I'll address this. Well, if you suppress the inflammation, are you going to have tissue buildup? Because don't you require inflammation to thin the endometrium line? And it's true, like it requires the inflammatory process to actually shed, um, but hormonally that will occur. Um, Mm -hmm. You don't need the level of pain that you can't go to work or you can't drive a car or so, you know, again, it's kind of a a relativity. Um, I I think for people that aren't experiencing pain, then they don't need to level up on these anti-inflammatories. They just keep it basic. Yep. Um, okay. And then when we're talking, you know, making our uterus happy and healthy beyond the inflammation and hormones pieces of the puzzle, um, let's talk about toxicity regulation and microbiome health. So what's the connection there and what can we do? Yes. So when we think of toxins, especially pesticides and dioxins, and so dioxins are found in bleach, which is super scary because bleach is being used everywhere in household cleaners. Mm -hmm. So if you missed last week's episode where we talked to Allison from Branch Basics, this is a call to action to do that. 
Um, I don't think I have to nerd out too much because we really covered a lot in the world of endocrine disruptors. And she's an individual that had quite severe PCOS and was told she would never conceive naturally and spoke to us pregnant with her third baby. So um, I think the impact that we, we think like toxins, like, well, I don't have toxins, but really again, like every single exposure of your Clorox wipes that are at the grocery store on your, sure. your handles. Yep. I always think of those. Um, we're, we're seeing again, a lot of bleach used in diluted forms in daycares and schools. Now, um, we know that we also can get these endocrine disruptors from our pesticides. So herbicides, fertilizers, another reason to vote organic and to purchase organic, um, sustainably grown, uh, free of pesticide grown, um, produce. And then also we watch plastics as a big Mm -hmm. one in this category. Um, And so when we look at endocrine disruption, we know that a lot of these actually function as xenoestrogens, which are, you know, man-made mimicking toxins that mimic our estrogen levels. So xenoestrogens are going to drive estrogen dominance in an individual and especially especially in a stressed individual which is the like perfect storm a stressed individual is going to be running slightly lower progesterone or maybe dynamically lower progesterone because of that pregnenolone steel so they're already you know converting their progesterone to cortisol to survive mm-hmm. and running that androgenic expression and now all of a sudden they are exposed to these toxins that are expressing estrogenic so maybe the individual doesn't have the belly fat of estrogen dominance or the breast tenderness but that is exacerbating the uterine dysfunction. So we really look at the detox packs, the Reset, Restore, Renew detox packs, and then kind of full cycling back to the diet stuff that I mentioned earlier. You know, So those cruciferous vegetables, that's where I'd go back again to fiber as your friend there. And then removal of these um, household cleaning products going to better options, best options. I think you guys should all check out Branch Basics and I'll put the code in um, today's show notes as well for you to save on your first order there. Um, And just thinking where you can start in your household. So using your farmer's market, growing your own produce, all of those pieces add up to offset that that delicate balance of hormone um, expression in the body. And generally speaking, I, I do suggest, especially if consuming alcohol, three to four times a week, um, the reset, restore, and new detox packs. And you might even think of doing those towards the end of your cycle, especially if you have a painful period, because that's going to help to also reduce the excessive free radical overload that would drive or exacerbate that inflammatory response. Sure. And I'll often recommend that too for women who get like hormonal acne to kind of hit it at that, you know, three to four days prior surge. And it tends to help on, on both ends of the spectrum. Yeah. And they tend to be more of those androgenic ones yep. for sure. Yep. And so, right, that detox pack can help to bring down some of that excessive estrogen, whether coming from toxin or just mm-hmm. imbalance in the body. Sure. Um, and then let's talk microbiome. We know that that also plays a role with how estrogen is metabolized and, and recycled in the body. So let's yeah. talk there. So we've talked about the estrobilome um, in past episodes, and this is basically the microbiome regulation of estrogen and specifically the microbiome presence that we see in the vaginal canal and, and that interconnected play of, again, colon and uterine health. Um, What's interesting, though, is that women with endometriosis have uh, high levels of gram-negative bacteria, 
and also um, have the bacterial toxin LPS or lipopolysaccharide in their pelvic area. And so um, this has been see, this has been shown um, through, we can see um, with cultures, um, so like from a pap smear, if that specific culture is run and tested, um, we know that um, endometriosis can be exacerbated when we see higher levels of gram-negative bacteria. So we could definitely consider in this world a probiotic challenge to just kind of see where the microbiome is at. And kind of going back full circle in the dairy world, that's why I would say if you're doing dairy, it has to be A2, but it also should be one that has good gut bacteria in it. You know, So this is meaning like the low heat processed yogurt, raw aged cheeses, um, I'm still obsessed with those raw cheese curds uh, that we get yeah, from yonder. Yeah, yeah. And what's the name of the farm? Is it Strauss? Strike. Strike. Yeah, Strike. T-R-Y-K. Yes. I assume that's how Strike or Strike. Strike. Yeah, either way, but those are delicious. Uh, so raw is going to give you still that bacterial benefit. Um, and then raw milk would also mm-hmm. have that play there. Um, and, and so we do see that some of these things like raw milk can actually help with regulation or reduction of LPS. Uh, and we think of that as something that can be like colostrum even further as a concentrate to be a tool to actually help with that gut lining support. Um, so probiotic challenge using the restore um, baseline probiotic would be a technique here. And I'll link the video on our YouTube channel of how to do that just to kind of get a litmus of where you're at. Um, if you know or you have indices of bacterial imbalance, Berberine would be fabulous, especially if you're having a hard time harnessing your blood sugar levels. We know that berberine is anti-inflammatory, so that's beneficial on its own aside from the microbiome. It also actually has the ability to repair intestinal permeability. I don't think we talk about that enough. So it actually can boost the immune system beyond having its antimicrobial, antifungal effects. So it can actually neutralize the bacterial toxin that drives that LPS and it can in turn continue to repair that intestinal permeability, which is pretty powerful as that kind of like dual or triple, might I say, because of the anti-inflammatory or quadruple because of the blood sugar regulation. Mm -hmm. Then you're watching that insulin growth hormone all of a sudden. Um, So we're starting to see a dynamic impact. And that's something that could be taken, you know, ongoing regardless of whether or not we're doing a beat the bloat cleanse. Um, but I do know that we've talked in past episodes about doing a cleanse as, as kind of a hard reset. If you are dealing with endometriosis, like yearly or every year and a half or so as a really important intervention, because not only that microbiome connection, but some of these compounds help with the way that our uterine lining sheds, right? Absolutely. And in the herbal immune, which is the other formula that we use in the beat the bloat cleanse, we know that all of those players actually have favorable hormonal effects. Mm -hmm. So we've talked in, I think it was, what episode was that boogers? We'll find it where we talked dysbiosis disease connection i think is that the one where you had the sage sage your uterus i think so i think so because it was like just post you had done another cleanse i'm pretty sure okay well we'll link the episode um and in that one i didn't add to the notes today but in that one we nerd out on all of the mechanisms of lemon balm um as well as the sage and the thyme and oregano oil and each of those compounds each of those plants themselves have been shown in clinical studies to either have favorable impact on progesterone or uh, as a diuretic or as a mood stabilizer with PMDD. Um, So a lot of multiple mechanisms that you're getting specifically with our suite for the Be The Bloat Cleanse. And not to mention, if we're talking about, you know, beyond uterine health, vaginal health and stubborn recurring yeast infections, BV, Mm -hmm. there's definitely that, that overlap there. Yes. 
And then just one more study I wanted to note on berberine specifically um, that we haven't shared from the last times we've talked about it. It does actually inhibit growth and inflammatory invasive phenotypes of ectopic stromal cells. Um, and this is a big play in treatment of adenomyosis. So there is ability of berberine to actually reduce uterine fibroids, but also specifically um, on as a tool of treatment for adenomyosis. So um, multiple mechanisms here, but there's a growth inhibitory effect that we see on these endometrial stromal cells and um, that triggers uh, apoptosis or basically cellular suicide or cellular death of the excess cells, uh, cell cycle arrest, so stopping from production or proliferation and alleviating the expression of the inflammatory invasive phenotypes. So various um, interleukins and inflammatory compounds all mitigated with the tool of berberine. And then I had a listener question that I'll address now too on berberine. She was asking about um, you know, metformin and berberine and um, well, aren't they both oral hypoglycemics? And so, you know, if uh, metformin is concerning because of the mitochondrial impact, wouldn't berberine be as well? And no, they work completely differently. So they are both oral hypoglycemics, true. And yes, research studies have shown that berberine has exhibited an identical effect in the regulation of glucose metabolism. And this has been shown through hemoglobin A1C, fasting blood glucose, postprandial glucose, fasting insulin, and postprandial insulin. So pretty multi-mechanistic regulation. And again, identical effect with metformin, which is the results on the blood sugar and insulin elements, but the mechanism of action is not identical. Um, so when we look at how berberine works, berberine actually has antioxidant support, whereas the metformin can actually um, burn out or reduce antioxidant levels in the body, which I think is really worth noting. Mm -hmm. um, and then berberine actually has been shown to perform better than metformin in regulation of lipid metabolism. So you're also getting that cholesterol regulating effect the um, improvement of elevation of HDL and regulation of the LDL as well as lower lipid oxidation. So really multi-mechanistic and then not to mention all the stuff that it's right. doing for the uterus. So I think, you know, two a day is really appropriate as like a baseline. But if you are someone that is dealing with blood sugar levels that are starting to elevate or any other, you know, indicating factors, you could be hanging out at that four a day for a while as well. Sure. Don't tell Big Pharma that it can do all those things anymore, I know. right? You don't need six <laughs> Identical drugs. Identical to a medication. That's pretty That's remarkable. quoted from the study that we yeah. made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then women's flora, I think, could be another great intervention here, especially as a vaginal insert, which we've talked about um, doing that in the evening, like maybe four or five times a week, and then also taken orally at times of need. Yep, and this is another one again because of that microbiome connection of expression of the inflammatory process, you might focus a little bit more towards the tail end, but I think that it's kind of good quote unquote housekeeping, if you will, um, to be doing a vaginal insert of, if you have any uterine conditions mm -hmm. um, or BV or you know yeast infections and whatnot, doing a vaginal insert a couple times a week, I think is a great proactive. And then as you get into that luteal phase, um, you know, days 23 plus of your cycle, that would be where you'd be more frequent or regimen with it. Sure. And, and a lot of women do experience kind of an uptick of yeast symptoms, like right leading into their cycle. So mm -hmm. I think all the more reason to do that. Most definitely. Um, what about um, use of bioidenticals? So let's talk about 
progesterone and, and considerations for use. Obviously, we would want to ensure that we're testing on a salivary level our hormones if we're going to go to the extent of bioidenticals. Yes. Yeah, I most definitely would say don't shoot in the dark with hormones ever. So any of these supplements we listed you know, prior to right now um, would be reasonable to shoot in the dark with um, because, again, they have multiple mechanisms of health-supporting effects. But the hormone balance in the body is like a symphony, and you don't want to just throw an instrument to upregulate their their volume if, if everything isn't balanced or you don't know that the volume was too low to begin with. We do know that low progesterone often disrupts, you know, hormone balance overall. And when progesterone levels are low, there's going to be that relative estrogen dominance, again, which could be exacerbated um, in the world of toxins or in the world of stress. And progesterone deficiency as well as estrogen dominance have been linked to development of endometriosis. So this would be one that would be more of an important first line of defense, even thinking of like with our early teens that are dealing with painful periods, something to consider before putting them on that oral contraceptive right, right. Of, of working with hormone to actually give the body what it needs. Um, so the Neurohormone Complete Plus, which we'll link in the show notes, is that assessment that would have the four-point cortisol collection. So you're collecting at rise, before lunch, before dinner, before bed, so we can see the cascade of your cortisol levels. We're also looking at that DHEA in there. We're looking at three different types of estrogen, so your estradiol, which is the dominant, as well as estrone and estriol. And then we're looking at your progesterone and testosterone, as well as neurotransmitters. And neurotransmitters are important, especially in the world of like teens through 30s and 40s, because we know again that this population is more susceptible towards depression and anxiety. So why not understand the whole suite of all the pieces of the puzzle? And then if progesterone levels are insufficient, this could be a very key playing add-in. And um, we do know that bioidentical progesterone can be used as an adjuvant um, or successful treatment tool in combination with anti-inflammatory effect for um, both endometriosis and uh, adenomyosis. So this is something that I would strongly consider looking into if you are dealing with dynamic hormone issues around cycle time um, or even just uterine thickening mm -hmm. to see on your DHEA as we sure. discussed earlier, you know. Um, bioidentical progesterone is, as it sounds, identical to what your body produces structurally. So the chemical structure is exact of that of what's made in the body. There is synthetic progesterone called progestins, um, and that's kind of the more conventional line of, uh, of, of intervention. The concern with the progestins, and, and I've seen even doing um, like suppositories of progestins as treatment of the, the adenomyosis, but the issue is progestins often drive erratic mood, um, tearfulness, um, can drive pretty significant depression or anxiety, and um, aren't always resolving. So why not use, again, what the body makes mm -hmm. and, and demands and needs? Um, bioidentical progesterone is generally yam-derived and um, can be taken orally or transdermally. And I like to lead transdermally, generally speaking, um, especially interestingly enough, like in the world of endometriosis, if you have spots of area, you might, um, you know, transdermally apply the progesterone to those tissues mm -hmm. to help with that endometrial inflammation of those cells that are displaced. 
Um, and you know, we know that that's one less thing for the liver to do because transdermally you're getting closer to the targeted area and it's going right into the capillaries versus having to be processed through the liver like an oral capsule would. Um, generally like 20 to 40 milligrams is a very appropriate transdermal dosage, but this would all be determined based on your lab values and you know, what your body needs essentially. Sure. Yep. Um, okay, so we've named a, a bunch of things now um, that can be used kind of as daily preventatives and, you know, pulsed up during times of, of increased pain. Let's just recap that in terms of like, what would the protocol look like for any type of, of period pain, but specific to endo and, and adenomyosis? Yeah, I'm just uterine health. So if there was fibroids or if there was just thickening or any of the stuffs. Yeah. So I think for sure that the players in the anti-inflammatory world, well, there's three. So, well, there's four, um, because cellular NTX technically could be an anti-inflammatory. And so if we're looking at like savings in the naturally nourished supplement line, I think the anti-inflammatory bundle would be a great option because that's going to give you the EPA DHA extra, the super turmeric and the cellular antiox. And so again, the cellular antiox, we talked about those three compelling studies with NAC and that was looking at three to four capsules of cellular antiox daily. Um, the omega threes and the EPA DHA extra three capsules daily would be appropriate. And you could ramp that up to five or six during times of period pain. Like again, I always would shoot two days prior if you can, if you are are cycle tracking, you should always start these anti-inflammatory boosts up, you know, two to three days prior. I wouldn't up the cell antiox. I would just keep that hanging as like a standard three to four. I'd only up cellular antiox with the COVID, um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) with respiratory stress is where I'd really up that one. But I don't think for period, I would have to go up on that. Um, super turmeric again, I think hanging at a base of two capsules a day would be very appropriate. And then leveling that up to four, six if required, but four should be sufficient to manage that inflammatory impact of the heavy cramping and periods, uh, relax and regulate at that standard one scoop. And then that could go up right two to three scoops at the time. Um, inflamazyme would be another one that I would say I would highly suggest in this world because of the proteolytic enzymes. So these enzymes are really key as they're one of the most natural, um, effective therapies for endometriosis. They can actually help to reduce scar tissue and break down excess tissue left from endometriosis. So especially if you're looking at the world of infertility or you have known um, uterine fibroids, you wanna make sure again that it's a hospitable uterus so that you're breaking down any of that tissue buildup and inflammatory impact Um, the enzymes that we see in the, um, inflammazyme are going to reduce the swelling and pain associated with any fibrocystic condition. So even fibrocystic breasts, for instance. Um, and then I just want to again, say out loud though, even though it has turmeric in it, (laughs) as I've learned, even though it has turmeric in it, you still need the super turmeric, um, because the turmeric in the inflammazyme is more of a complement to those proteolytic enzymes. It's not necessarily a turmeric formula. Sure. Call that out. Yeah. And um, not as high of a dose either. Right. Yeah. Right. So those would be all things that you'd kind of adjust for cycle. And then there's like those maintenance tools. Um, and so in the world of the maintenance tools, we're looking at, of course, a quality multivitamin, as we mentioned. Um, so whether that's the multi-avail mama or whether that's the multi-defense with iron. And then um, the berberine, I think, has a place at two daily in these conditions or these areas of focus. And then um, the vitamin D balanced blend, and then pulsing in those Reset, Restore, Renew detox packs as needed. 
Um, and then depending on where you're at with your gut flora, whether you're taking the targeted strength probiotic or the restore baseline, I still think you want to pollinate a little bit in the women's flora probiotic orally and um, inserting. Okay. That's all of the ones that kind of hit on, I think. And so hopefully that recaps in the supplement space. Um, I do want to touch base just on the painful cramps and some topical considerations. So um, Santa Cruz Medicinals, who's one of our sponsors, makes a CBD-infused Epsom salt combination. Um, And this would be really beautiful to do, again, ideally two days before your cycle. Maybe you take a bath a couple nights leading up and then definitely on the days of the painful cramping. Um, It also, it has uh, sage in there and a little bit of lemongrass. It's really dreamy smelling, um, but that sage also supports that uterine health. Um, So that would be really cool. I can link the product and um, my discount code in the show notes. So when you use Allie Miller RD, I think you save 15% in free shipping. Um, So Epsom salt bath, but maybe using the CBD infused Epsom salt bath to level it up. Um, And then CBD oil topically, um, Mm -hmm. they also have a pain salve that I'll link in my notes, which includes turmeric in there. Um, So that'd be great to do like in the lower back area, or again, if you get the legs or the, the, um, in the area of the uterus where you're experiencing most trauma or pain, and then considering CBD orally as well. Um, And then Foria is a company that makes CBD inserts. And so this would be something that we could do, um, you know, again, ideally a night or two prior to menstrual cycle. I haven't played with it during active menstrual cycle just because of that idea of like not battling something in my system, but I might play with it for fun and report back. Um, But I have done it a couple days prior to a cycle and I really felt that that Mm -hmm. was a a helpful tool. And then especially in the world of like painful sex, that would be something to play with. You know, um, the Foria, they have two options there. You could use their CBD lubricant during intercourse, which would be great for painful sex. And then they also have those same suppositories, which you could use like an hour or two um, prior to um, intercourse or maybe like afternoon time or something like that. And what you're really looking to do again is reduce the chemical surge of inflammation. I've had individuals, um, clients of mine that had interstitial cystitis and really the big turnkey was like after, well, A, they've all had to do the beat the bloat cleanse. They all have had dysbiosis and or candida that we've seen on MRT or a stool test. And um, that was key. But then working with just consistency of regulating the inflammation and the CBD suppositories were always helpful turnkey of helping make sex more enjoyable, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which you know is important because when you're able to then have sex, then you're able to release more of you know the opioid um, receptor function of the pain mediating effects. Sure. So then your inflammation goes down yeah. with your menstrual cycle yeah. and all of that kind of works favorably. Totally. Totally. Um, and we'll link all of that in the show notes as well, the Foria CBD suppositories. Yes. And, you know, so if we're talking about like CBD um, as a tool for just pain and inflammation in general, um, you know, I generally recommend getting that like 50 to 80 milligrams. Um, so that might be like a dropper at rise, a dropper at bed. If you're using a um, 2000 milligram potent bottle, usually that's around th- 33 milligrams per dropper. Um, but give or take, it's just going to depend on the formula and, um, how potent it is on the bottle. And you always want to read the back of your bottle for milligrams per ML. Okay. Um, let's wrap up with just some maybe food as medicine goals. I know you mentioned the, um, red raspberry leaf tea. So I'm interested to hear what you found about that. Yeah. So, I mean, it helps as you know, with uterine tone. And so we think of the, the big 
focus here is that it can reduce prostaglandin production. Um, and so it also can ease contraction of smooth muscles in the uterus. So this can play a really big role. You started it like third trimester, right? Cause it's one of those that you don't do early in pregnancy. I know that because of the muscle tone too early. Um, but I found kind of varying recommendations. I ended up starting it probably like, yeah, third trimester, 28-ish Yeah, weeks. 30 weeks, kind of thinking, um, yeah. And my midwives had recommended like starting with a cup and then um, as you got closer and closer to your due date, kind of pulsing that up to like three to four cups a day. I was drinking a lot of that stuff. Yeah, so it does. <laughs> so it can actually um, symptomatically um, aid in spasms and um, that's what helps with the menstrual period cramping pain. But it also just tonifies, again, this is an organ that is also a muscle. Um, So it's very nutritive. And the nutritive function along with that prostaglandin um, inhibition and muscle tone plays a really big role. And you kind of want to think of the uterus as like elastic. And um, you want good malleability and also good structural tone. Um, So that would be the big thing there. Doing an infusion of that with like oat pod and nettle could be really great because nettle is really great for red blood cell building. Um, We think of that as a big one for like anemia treatment. So as you're getting into that window of having your menstrual cycle, I think doing nettle and red raspberry leaf tea would be a great combination. And then the oat straw or oat pod is that nervine or anxiolytic and mineral rich. So I think that those three play really nice together. And then the big thing on just food in general, again, I would say anything in this world, um, especially with endometriosis or adenomyosis, but uterine fibroids as well, PCOS as well. This is where I'd really say, you know, we want to play with keto or, or if we're not comfortable living in a keto space, which there is that dance, um, you know, again, just to call out, there is the hormetic element of if you go too tight nutritional ketosis, you might suppress sex hormone production and you might go, um, you know, uh, hype, what is, come on, Becky, hypo out, you lose your period. Amenorrhea. Amenorrhea. I was trying to put the word hypo in there. Hypoallergenic. (laughs) Amenorrhea. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was trying to say. Right. You might want. You might experience amenorrhea um, when we're really tight keto because we might not have enough body fat a to help with sexual hormone production. Um, We also can underfeed and we can go androgenic. So I just want to kind of call that out. So there's this sweet spot, and that's why I love. Our food as medicine approach to keto, allowing carb cycling, allowing a little bit of metabolic flexibility, you know, maybe, maybe keeping carbs at like 45 to 60 grams so that the, the leptin levels are regulated and the body feels safe. Um, that's really important piece of the puzzle because like a dirty keto or a very restrictive keto is going to likely drive hormonal imbalance over time, either through suppression, androgenic expression, or through low quality fats. Like we're getting too many of those trans fats or saturated fats from unhealthy sources if it's a dirty keto per se. So I would say, you know, keeping carbs at like 45 to 60 grams would be best. Um, Limiting maybe to one fruit choice plus berries or one starchy veg choice. I would keep grains out, but make sure you do get that fiber from your nuts and seeds. Um, There's just a lot of data we see out there. I'll link another study on the role of insulin and carbs. Um, It's called macrophage-driven insulin, like growth factor one is a key nootrophic factor um, and nerve sensitizing in pain associated with endometriosis. So there is definite connection of blood sugar regulation and inflammation. We know that. And added benefit if you can get into a state of ketosis because then you're getting the anti-inflammatory effects 
of actual ketones because Mm -hmm. ketone production is going to be reducing that oxidative stress and reducing that inflammation. So keto in a food as medicine approach, we're still getting good amounts of whole food fiber would be key for N-acetylcysteine foods. I think right away of bone broth. Um, so bone broth fasting could be something fun to do. Getting your aliums in like your onions, shallots, garlics, and leeks. Incorporating turmeric. We talked about all the benefits of turmeric. So doing like a golden milk latte or something like that could be fun. Um, adding turmeric to your smoothies or doing the turmeric lemon shooter. Um, a great thing to kind of start your engine in the morning and also drive the liver detox and give you a boost of vitamin C, which again has such of the benefits of both the antioxidant as well as the progesterone boost there. And then um, continuing with your magnesium rich foods and again, nuts and seeds for the vitamin E and magnesium, and then in my leafy greens. And I think as I'm sharing today with y'all, I think that like Nuts and seeds are one that I have a a dance with. Sometimes they just totally fall off of my diet. Like, I don't know why and how. So that's going to be my personal commitment. I'm going to get these delightful sprouted walnuts. I'll link them. Um, One of my friends introduced me to them and they were delightful. And um, I'm going to do the sprouted walnuts and um, more Marcona almonds done with olive oil. um, Because some of those have safflower Mm -hmm. oil or sunflower oil or something like that. Um, and, uh, continue working my leafy greens. Sometimes the leafy greens with season change kind of fall off. So continuing to braise down the kale and the bone broth and things like that as well. Yes. Hypothalamic amenorrhea is what you're trying to think of. I knew there was a hypo. I'm like, well, there's my brain today. Well, I need to start my progesterone tonight. Stage 12 of my cycle. That's where my brain is. Yeah. Um, and then let's talk just other lifestyle elements. So exercise. Yeah. I just uh, want to close with yeah, exercise because yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot, again, thinking of this being a muscle organ, mm-hmm. you know, we got to think of toning that area. Um, there is a higher incidence of, like I said, depression and anxiety in individuals that have endometriosis and, um, We know that exercise can prompt the release of natural opioids, just like sex, like I was saying. Um, And so this can help in pain management. Um, Pelvic floor movement specifically can be very important in strengthening the muscles and ligaments around bladder, vagina, um, uterine tone, and bowels, which can play a big role. Um, Thinking of movements of um, like, so you could work with a pelvic floor physical therapist if you're dealing with extreme pain. I think that that would be definitely worth considering. Um, But thinking of movements, even where like if you have both legs on the ground and you're just lifting a leg, like a slow march, and instead of lifting it from your your quad and employing your your big leg muscles to lift it, think of lifting from your pelvic floor and also what what you can kind of align from your transverse abdominis. Um, I've been doing a lot of Pilates recently, and so a lot of the like footwork on the rebar, um, are huge in that world of like when you're pushing off and you're kind of sucking in and, and holding up. That is the sound. That is it. Yeah. Um. <laughs> or like um, pelvic tilts, bridges, and like tucks. Bridge is huge. Yeah. Yep. Twists mm-hmm. are even big. Hip flexors. So even just like standing up and pulling your um, heel to your butt um, and opening up that front hip flexor mm-hmm. is huge for that uterine tone. Um, and I think bridges, yeah, absolutely huge. And, and so if you're doing like with a ball, like you can. Um, keep a ball between your legs and bridge up and then like move the ball with your hands while your body is still raised and bridge. So you're activating then your abs and then grabbing the ball again and bringing it down. Mm-hmm. Um, and even just bringing your, laying on your back and moving your legs side to side. But again, instead of driving with your legs, driving with 
that lower ab- abdominal uterine space to move your legs because it's all in that area. Um, hip circles, sitting on a yoga ball, um, twists, yoga Pilates, these are all big things that can help to specifically tone your uterus. So hopefully today had lots of ideas for you to support your body and enhance your uterine health. Um, As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and leave us a five-star review and what you love about the Naturally Nourished podcast. Everything that we discussed today supplement-wise can be found over at AllieMillerRD.com. And um, as always, our podcast notes are going to be wherever you're listening. So when you're looking for these links that we're noting, we do archive all of our episodes over at NaturallyNourishedRD.com, but you can always click details on wherever you're listening to the episode. So if you're on Spotify or iTunes, or Podbean or Google Play. All of these links should be accessible to the research studies, the products, um, whether they are of our line or other brands that we love that we think would also help you to optimize and thrive. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.